Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and this is episode 68. Today, we're going to be talking about the questions about generations and grounded theologies. And what is a chuk sing, a bamboo star? Let's do this! Hello, hello, hello. Thank you guys so much for joining us once again. This is going to be an extra special episode. I think we've made it now. We have a guest, a very special guest, all the way from around the world. There's 13-hour difference. So we're recording this at night, and it is brand spanking new morning for him. 9.30, he is drinking a great cup of coffee. Justin, how are you doing? I'm alive. Alive. He's alive. I'm yes. alive. Yes, yes, we need some kind of young Frankenstein reference. It's good. As always, Bernard, Shu, and Xenia are here. How are you guys doing? Hey, how's yeah. it going? Yo, yo. Yo, 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 yo. Yes. Just as a very, very brief introduction to Justin, he is the assistant professor of, of humanities, which is education, in Singapore Management University's Office of Core Curriculum. And the School of Social Sciences. That is amazing. That what a title. He has also been the editor for Theological Reflections on the Hong Kong Umbrella Movement, and you can check that out. That came out in 2016. And he's currently working on a book. It's called "The Secular in a Sheet of Scattered Sand: Cantonese Protestants and Post-Secular Publics on the Pacific Rim." That sounds really neat. We're going to get a chance to chat a little bit about that a little bit later in our episode. But man, Justin, we are so honored that you would join us today and that you have listened to this small little niche podcast from Canada and have actually posted some very nice comments. And so, you know, we are very humbled that you would join us today. Can you share a little bit with us about who you are and what you're all about? Thanks for having me on the podcast. I, I don't know whether the podcast is niche, though, but that might be because I always wanted to be a Chinese-Canadian Christian. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was a pastor's kid, and also my mom had this card that was pink that she said was green. <laughs> that That's has, so good! Right? And it said resident alien. So then I was like, what planet are we from, Mom? And she goes, Canada. So I always had this consciousness that I was supposed to be Chinese-Canadian, but kind of a resident alien in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we were Christian. So when I saw your podcast being posted, I thought, ah, you know, my dreams are all coming true. I, now I'm in Singapore, and I can still be a Chinese-Canadian Christian. Excellent. Yes. That's me. I'm a wannabe Chinese-Canadian Christian. Nice. Very Nice. Could you share a little bit about your journey? You know, you just mentioned that, you know, you grew up in the States in a Christian household and a pastor's kid. What has your personal journey been like? So currently I work as, a, as, as you said, a, an academic in a university. And that's partly because I did my PhD in geography at the University of British Columbia. I did that PhD because I was working out my own personal issues with the Chinese church. And so, of course, I wrote on Chinese Christians. Of course, people there said they didn't care. So I made them care by writing about how Chinese Christians engage civil society, which is a nice, sexy word for saying that they got all political. I 
thought it would be a very short dissertation because the answer would have been, oh, Chinese Christians in politics, what do they do? Nothing! End of dissertation. 600 pages <laughs> oh, later, I have a book now that I have to revise based on it because it's too long for the publisher. So that's basically my journey. Religiously, I guess, I'm Eastern Catholic. Technically, where that locates me in the world for people who care is that I'm in this church called the Ukrainian Greco-Catholic Church, which is all kinds of false advertising. I call it the Greek Catholic Church of Kiev because that's a little bit more accurate because I'm not Ukrainian and prefer Chinese dumplings to Vereniki. So that's where I am, I guess, ecclesially. So. Wow. I feel like, you know, you are a long lost sibling and you fit right in with this motley crew for our podcast. So, or maybe we're the long lost siblings. Maybe know. we. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Man, there's so much to unpack with that. Justin, we've known each other since what, 2015? Something yeah. like that. I just want to say that when I first picked up your work, I was a huge fan of your blog. And this was back when you were Chinglican. So Whoa. I know that you are no longer Chinglican. I want to make no. that very clear to the webosphere. I think you need to talk about what that term means. I don't know if all of our listeners will know what that means. Back in the good old days when I was concerned about my fate on the academic job market, I used to blog anonymously. Now I have a job, so you know it's okay now. So I used to blog anonymously on this blog called A Christian Thing, which was a knockoff of the Catholic blog portal called Vox Nova. Uh, we were Protestant. And so it's called a Christian thing. And I blogged anonymously as Chinglican at table. All that meant was that I was a Chinese Anglican because I didn't want Anglo in my blog name, because that just signaled that I continued to be colonized. And in 2016, I became Eastern Catholic. So I retired Chinglican like the Dread Pirate Roberts in <laughs> The Prince's Bride. Now someone else is Chinglican, and I have nothing to do with him. This is awesome. Somebody, I love the Somebody references. took over your, your name? There's a guy on Twitter who is Chinglican now, and he's not me. And his politics are, like, not mine. And so, you know, it's very <laughs> important for me to clarify that, you know, like the Dread Pirate Roberts, he has, I have nothing to do with him, and he has nothing to do with me. I am Spartacus. I am Spartacus. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, one of the things that we touched base on was, I think, shortly after your book came out or as you were writing your book, but what really intrigued me was this thing that you called grounded theologies. So I was wondering if you could explain a little bit for us what grounded theologies mean, because we're very used to thinking about theology in certain ways. And so we wanted your take on what this other thing is. Oh, that's really cool. So I guess this gets right into it. I wrote a piece for Progress in Human Geography, which is one of the top journals in, our, in the discipline, titled Grounded Theologies. And what I argued in it was that perhaps when we examine geographies of religion and the secular, we, sometimes we see religion and the secular as two different things. And I, I would like to propose that we have a more unitary understanding of the world that is theological. It means that we examine what I called performative practices, so practices that do things, of the world that are informed by some kind of understanding of the transcendent. That word transcendent I get from the philosopher Charles Taylor, our Canadian homeboy, on 
page 16 of A Secular Age, where he says that... Did you memorize it? That's why you can quote it right now. I've used this quote so many times that I'm like, all right, you know, Taylor, 2007, colon 16, right? So he calls the transcendent anything to do with God, God's spirits, magic forces, or whatever. And I take that whatever extremely seriously because what it, what the whatever means in a secular age is that I think everybody has some sensibility about the spiritual, whether or not they are in denial about it. And that spirituality may not be Christian by any stretch of the imagination, but who said that we had any corner on the market anyway? So that is, in a nutshell, what grounded theologies are. It's this kind of way of examining the world through, I guess, a spiritual lens. I love that you take the whatever seriously. That's probably my favorite line that you've just said. I regularly have favorite lines of yours. So, you know, when you talk about your studying Cantonese Protestants on the Pacific Rim, one of those communities is Vancouver, which you studied in. And so when you're thinking about grounded theologies and you think about Cantonese Protestants in Vancouver, like, what does that look like? That's a good question. So the way that the project started out was I really felt that Cantonese-speaking Protestants in Vancouver and San Francisco and Hong Kong, frankly, were a profoundly misunderstood people. And that's because the way that their activities were being reported on the news, you know, with regards to same-sex marriage, transgender rights, and that kind of thing really painted them as these sorts of political actors that had been duped by the conservative party. And I sort of felt like these people have agency. I mean, these are people that, you know, I go to church with and they're my uncles and aunties. And they have quite complex views on politics that tend to veer towards what they think is apolitical, but that's all denial too, right? So I wanted to get at that sort of complex subjectivity. And so I thought that the way to enter into that was through the lens of grounded theologies, because I would sort of tackle what what kind of theological thing they are trying to enact in the secular civil society. What I discovered was that it wasn't so simple, because that secular civil society also has theological underpinnings. And those uncles and aunties understand that and realize that they have to play that game. And so what that means is that everyone's theology gets sort of adjusted in this sort of public engagement because there's the the need for the uncles and aunties to rationalize theologically why they are doing politics while they're supposed to be apolitical. And then there's the secular civil society that goes, are we supposed to have these religious people tell us what to do in our lives? But again, you know, that question is born of a particular kind of theology that regards the sacred as private. So in this sort of, you know, realignment, so to speak, I found that grounded theologies was actually like more profound of a concept than I thought it was going in. And that's sort of the surprise that I got (laughs) from the ethnographic study, which is always what you want, right? You never want to go into the field knowing what you want to find. I mean, you want to know what you want to what you look for, but you don't really know what you want to find. And so that was the surprise that that grounded theologies really started messing with me. So 
I'm wondering if, okay, if there's a non-scandalous example that you can give us, because, you know, you and I both know that there are lots of scandals that show up within Cantonese Protestantism. But is there a non-scandalous option that you can list out? Sure. I mean, there, there are Cantonese Protestant examples and there are non-Cantonese Protestant examples. You know, when I started out my fieldwork in 2011, it was almost perfect timing because around the time that my dissertation proposal came out, Jason Kenney had a minor scandal. The set of PowerPoint slides that he had made on how to market to South Asian and Chinese markets of voters came out, leaked to the press, and it was sort of on his official letterhead. And so the CBC Nationals' Adrian Arsenault went to Vancouver to talk to Chinese Christians. And uh, she asked them, she had the little focus group thing, and she asked them, how did they vote? And one woman eagerly pointed to her Bible. And so she had to sort of figure out, why do Chinese Christians involve religion in their politics? And then she began to talk to these Cantonese-speaking Protestant pastors. And what they told her was completely different from what these people, you know, pointing to their Bibles said. They, they said, well, you know, Chinese values are about, you know, traditional family values and secure policing, which I'm not sure. I've read Journey to the West. I've read, you know, Outlaws of the Marsh. I'm not <laughs> sure that, oh, that these are traditional Chinese values. Yes. Anyways, you, you see what's happening, though, right? Adrian Arsenault is asking, why are these Chinese Christians getting duped by the conservative party based on their religion? And what sh- the reply she's getting from the pastoral leadership is, hey, actually, we are kind of secular. Right. So it's this kind of game that everybody is sort of playing to sort of meet in the middle without sort of divulging their actual spiritual inclinations. So that's the Cantonese Protestant example. Another example, you know, in 2007, there's this what Vancouver considers a megachurch, 10th church, uh, Vancouver. City Hall required them to get a social service permit for their homeless shelter. And this group was founded called Faith Communities Called the Solidarity for the Poor. It was an interreligious coalition that contested City Hall's sort of decision because, you know, they had had their homeless shelter for, for a long time. And this was the first time they had ever heard that they needed to get a social service permit. And basically what that resulted in was Planners in City Hall who never really had to think about theology, having to think very seriously about what a church is and what their relationship is to the poor. Now, to me, that is another instantiation of grounded theologies because it's secular actors who don't really think about religion having to think very hard about the spiritual assumptions that they have. I I love this kind of thing because it really is revelatory about how theologically constituted the secular remains. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think even in those two stories, the two separate actors, the secular so-called and the Protestants, are both making these assumptions about one another. And so at the at the end of the day, they're still in a common arena, but they're kind of overlapping or, you know, they're like two ships sailing in the night that just miss each other. So I think, you know, you, you talked a little bit earlier about this huge dissertation, which 
by the way, is no small undertaking, being born out of this need to figure yourself out. And you publicly identify as a joksing all the time. And for our listeners who don't, under, who don't know what a joksing is, it's a, is this term for people who were not born in Hong Kong, Guangdong, and I guess the closest equivalent is banana. Banana is still too substantive. That's why I like Joksing, because banana still presumes that there's something inside and that's white, right? I, I am trying to gesture to the emptiness inside. Oh, of man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is getting right. Deep. It's sort of like it's sort of like that Catherine Scott song, right? The one that messes with the four chords, because, you know, usually the evangelicals go one, four, five, six, one. Right. But hungry goes like one, six, five, four. Right. So it really screws with the system every so I'm gesturing towards that void that the 1654 song is going. Yeah. So I think my question is, how do you navigate that space of, you know, owning the label of Joksing? And it, even in doing this project, you're relating with people of the first generation. And how do you even see yourself as located in the generations? This is also a really good question. So when I came home from school, when I was like eight years old, my mom suddenly like, pointed an imaginary remote control at me and said, Jun Thai, change channel. And from then on out, I needed to speak Cantonese until I went to school the next day. I really resented this until my <laughs> PhD when I was like, thanks, mom, I can do this entire project in this language that I spoke at home. When people hear my Cantonese, they're like, well, you're not exactly a joke singer because you're not exactly empty in there. And, you know, then I make references to like outlaws on the marsh and people are like, well, you definitely have something going on there. But I'm in denial because I haven't gone to therapy yet. So my inclination is still to refer to myself as a joksing because I still feel that void inside. How do I identify in terms of generations? Xenia and I have had this conversation many times. You know, the generations thing really is a construct of the Chicago School of Sociology, where sociologists used to go into neighborhoods in, say, Chicago, which was what they called an urban laboratory, and talk to Eastern European migrants and ask them about like their children and how, how well their children are assimilating into the quote-unquote American way of life. Around that time, this question began, began to be formulated. Like, you know, these Eastern Europeans can pass as white. What about Black people? And that became the <clears throat> Negro problem of the Chicago School of Sociology. And then we Asians got our own problem. We were called the <clears throat> Oriental problem. And so the Oriental problem sort of presumed that those of us who are second generation can become, and I kid you not, this is a term from the 1920s, a bridge between the white people and our communities. But some people didn't like that term, the bridge, because, you know, what's a bridge for? It's to be stepped on, right? But basically, that's sort of where that sort of generation talk sort of came out of. And within Asian America, that really came to a head in the Japanese-American in incarceration during the Second World War, because those generations began to sort of have disagreements about 
Should we go along with this incarceration? Should we fight the white people? Should we migrate back to Japan? What what should we do in these camps? By the way, we're in camps and it's not very fun, right? So that's really where the generations talk comes from. And it sort of gets imported into Asian American theology based on reflection on that very unjust experience. All that's to say, I grew up referring to myself as second generation. And I can't get it out of my consciousness either, because that's the way that I was taught to think of myself without the knowledge of this Asian American history. So that sort of puts me into a bind. It's sort of like I know too much, but I can't stop doing what I'm doing. And that, I don't know, feels very Pauline to me. I don't know whether that answers your question, Zedia, but I'm all kinds of conflicted and you know, in inner turmoil, these things cancel each other out dialectically, resulting in a void. Which is why I refer to myself as Juksing. This is a cool reflection on the word Juksing. I've never heard it like that before. But I think like, you know, I think about it and I'm like, oh, I mean, that totally makes so much sense. But I'm also kind of thinking like, you know, just you, you almost kind of describing this existential angst of like, what what is this all about? Like, who am I? This kind of identity crisis. Like, as you're unraveling this, like, like, are you kind of more able to articulate like a different language that kind of helps other people who are wrestling with this, like begin to spin something new? Like, and like, I, I here I am working with our denomination as the second generation implementer. <laughs> and then I'm sitting here and I'm like learning about the history, which I already struggled with. I'm like, what the hell is second generation anyways? Like second to what? Right. And then there's all these kind of like chaos of like, you know, describing that. And so, like, I'd love to hear kind of a little bit more. What are you thinking about that? I mean, this kind of gets back to Xenia's original question about grounded theologies, right? Like, because generation speak is so prevalent in our churches, one has to really wonder how sociological talk from the Chicago School of Sociology became the primary way we do theology, right? Like this is this is literally the language of the secular, I don't know, seeping into our theological discourse, isn't it? So so that's sort of one area of reflection that I'm happy to sort of go down. The other thing that as you were talking, Bernard, about figuring out this sort of existential angst, I teach a book from which I get this term juxing on Chinese American experience when I used to teach Asian American studies at Northwestern, it's a book titled uh, Eat a Bowl of Tea. It's a wonderful book. Well, it's wonderful for several reasons. The first is that it literally translates Cantonese cuss words into English in the dialogue. So that's just wonderful because suddenly these people are, you know, reading things for the first time that they've never, words they've never read before. The second thing is that it's a story actually about a a Chinese American man, a Juxing, who, uh, finds his manhood, literally, because the plot of the entire book is him wrestling with erectile dysfunction. What what happens as the course of the book goes along is that he deals with his own daddy issues, he deals with his own relationship with the with the Chinatown community, he deals with, you know, the the perception that he's a juxing. And the way that he finally is able to get it up in the end is he takes traditional Chinese medicine and reads things like Outlaws of the Martian Three Kingdoms, and he discovers what a real man he is. Now, I love this book, partly because it's quite obscene, but it sort of speaks to the sort of, quote-unquote, second-generation juxing angst. Like, if, if it's empty, 
there are a lot of these works in translation right now that you know, could be useful theological fodder for us to sort of push back on the ways that our identities have been imposed on us. Oh, obscene aside, like, I, I think just thinking through that, too, just that how little most of us who are joking or who still consider, you know, using the term like second gen, third gen, how little we do know about our own tradition, our own history, our what like what is part of that that informs who we are. You know, I remember my parents always going, never forget that you're Chinese. Like, don't don't ever forget that. And then I used to be like, I, f- I feel I'm more westernized. <laughs> like, I've uh, had that. But now as I've gotten older, and now as I'm starting to wrestle with, actually, in my faith, in, in the theology, as, as you're kind of saying, I'm starting to actually see the need to go back to, to see more about where I'm coming from, where where that roots are, and not just you know, what, like you're saying, what has been put on me by someone else. So I do find that really fascinating. I also found that a very useful secular reflection. And that's partly because I totally failed in ministry when I was 21. So suddenly I found myself in the secular workforce. And what I discovered about the secular workforce is that they don't really, they don't really care about the authenticity that we you know, talk about, you know, in second generation speak, right? And so all that sort of authenticity, purity, identity kind of stuff, it it made me quite a character in the secular workplace, but I'm not sure it ever worked out all the time, right? And what I needed were what I would now call political skills, you know, kind of soft skills of negotiating difficult, complex, and conflictual situations. And I think, you know, being so formed in a church where A, I was told that I was a Juxin, B, I was told that I was a second generation. And C, because of that, I was somehow different from my parents who played all their church politics. But, you know, we second generation, we have no politics. Suddenly that left me with zero political skills for the secular workforce. And I think that's an area of theological reflection that I think many of us, you know, could possibly find some usefulness in exploring because most people in our churches don't live in church. I was saying to somebody that before I became Catholic and mature, I used to say that, you know, our churches are not monastic communities. Now that I'm Catholic, I find that monks also brew beer, sell cheese, and, you know, sell coffee on Etsy to make sure their monastic communities can pay their mortgage, right? So so even monastic communities are not, you know, divorced from this kind of material reality. And that's going to be our episode for today. Lots to continue to unpack from what Justin was talking about. Thank you so much, Justin, for joining us today. Hey, we'd love to hear what you think. You can hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or by email. Our email address is contact.campodcast at gmail.com. That's contact.campodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. What were some of the takeaways from today? We're going to have more conversation with Justin in our next episode, talking about what happens when we are fragmented as a people and what does it mean to share a cultural history. If you haven't done so already, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share it with others. That helps us to get this conversation out there and to continue to be able to reach more people. Once again, you've been listening to the Canadian Asian Mission Podcast. And on behalf of Shu, Xenia, Bernard, and myself, we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time.